Welcome to the Bard and Bible, a conversational devotional about scripture, life, and ministry from the perspective of a tabletop missionary still trying to figure out what those words actually mean when you string them together. There's a seat by the fire over there, and it looks like things are just about to get started. Tonight's tale, Sea Change. Hello and well met, weary travelers. My name is Mike Perna, your resident dwarf bard, and this is the Bard and Bible. Please, come in and make yourself comfortable, though please mind, some of the spaces directly off of the hall are reserved for a private party. Have you ever heard of the Shipson family of Serpent's Bay? The family patriarch has left us, sad to say, so his children have decided that they wanted to send him off into the new dawn with a reunion. So far, it's been quite a night. I only hope that when it's my turn to go onward from this place, I would be so fortunate to have such a send-off. Oh, if you'll excuse me, it looks like there's somebody else coming up the path, and it is my job to greet new guests. Oh, friend, you may want to head upstairs, and we'll take care of the details of your stay later. The youngest Shipson is here. It's my guess that his appearance would be something akin to throwing blasting powders on a fire primordial. Off you go, before things get ugly. I can handle everything down here. When plotting the idea of going story by story through the book of Genesis, you cross a lot of stories that can be exciting to talk about, because there's just so much here. But I have to say that of all of the things that lie before us, Noah has got to be one of the ones that I've been the most excited about. And part of that is the academic pursuit of it. This podcast, more often than not, focuses on stories in the Bible that either you've never heard of before, and, and I'm, my job is to bring it into the light, or they're stories that you've read countless times, you've heard countless sermons on, you've done countless studies on, and I'm going to roll up and poke at all this, the spots that don't fit in those mediums. And we're going to look at the different aspects of the story, bring out some other stuff in them, and really see some of the other angles that God wants to bring out in that story that just we don't really think about before. And so, yeah, to look at a story like Noah that is so just ever-present I know I knew a lot of the story before I ever cracked the Bible, let alone put any faith in this. So, yeah, I'm really excited to look at this element of this story, but there's also a huge personal element to this story to me. My son is named Noah because of this story. We named him Noah in honor of my dad because this is my father's favorite Bible story. So, literally, I am bookended by generations of my family who are greatly impacted by this particular tale. I grew up surrounded by renditions of Noah's Ark in toys, in pictures, in ornaments. It's everywhere. It People kept giving my dad different options of Noah's Ark. And so 
what what can I possibly find out here? What can I I walked into this going going, God, I really need your help. I want to find something in this story that I've never seen before, and I really can't because I've seen it in so many different ways. And I could practically hear God laugh when when he goes, I have two sentences of this story that will change the way you see all of it. And my goodness, I, I'm here for this ride, but man, it has been a ride. It has, has been something that has been percolating for a while. And I, I'm really excited to share it with you. I, I really hope that I can somehow communicate what God's been communicating to me through this. But let's just let's stop beating around the bush. I, I, I want to get into what we're talking about here, but let's just read the text. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. It's really easy to focus all your attention on the Noah story into the stuff that we usually focus on when we mention the Noah story. Everything's epic. Everything is, is unreal proportions. You literally have the wrath of God laid waste upon the world. You have the grace of God saving Noah and his family. And you have the promise of God that says we will never see that level of devastation ever again. It is huge and just deeply theologically important. But my goodness, when I started paying attention to this section... There are so many crazy turns and alleyways, so many things that I dug up that I really kind of wish I didn't, because you can start looking into things like, what did Ham do? I had no idea there were so many interpretations of what Ham did, from the literal to the, the wow, crazy. Uh, I had so many questions about the curse, like, like not only why, what did Ham do to warrant it, but then think about why was it on Canaan? Why have we spent this entire section only referring to Ham in relation to Canaan? Why are we, if we're talking about Canaan because we're 
we're talking about cursing the generations. Why are we blessing Shem and Japheth? Shouldn't we be talking about their kids? I'm like, there's so much here. But I'm not talking about any of that. Because two of the most boring sentences in this entire story rocked my entire world when it came to understanding what is happening here and the ramifications of it in light of the flood narrative. They are, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and he drank of wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. These sentences I've read so many times, but I've always just kind of just run through them as set dressing. At best, the drunkenness became the inciting incident for the rest of the stuff in the story. The, it became the whole setup for the curse, setup for what's going on here. The setup of the end of the Noah Ark. But when I really broke down what's happening and what these two sentences encapsulate, it gave me a new angle to read everything else. And I hope, if you're here with me this long, I hope that I can elaborate on this to a point that you see it too. And even if you don't necessarily agree with me on the importance of them, I hope that it gets you asking the questions that I ask. Because time is really an important thing here. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Let's really absorb that. Let's take that in. How much time are we talking here? He wants to be a farmer. Okay, so he has to find land. He not only has to find land, he has to find land that is flat enough for farming. He has to find land that is tenable to farming. The, the soil has to be good. He has to find irrigation. Preferably, he has to have a, a viable water source that's right there. Okay. He let's just say he finds those things. Fine. He still has to cultivate that land because the likelihood that that, that amount of flat land that is viable for farming has stuff on it. So he's got to take all that stuff out. Okay. Now, he decides he wants to plant a vineyard, it goes on to say. Okay. Now, unless you tell me that Noah knew he was going to plant a vineyard after the flood was over and thus had some form of ark seed bank, Noah's got to find those seeds. He's got to go out and find them. And then he's got to plant them. He's got to go back to that field that he's set up and he's got to plow it and he's got to put the seeds in. He's got to bury them and, and make sure they're, they're taken care of. And then he's got to wait until they grow. And all the while he's waiting for it to grow, if he wants to make wine out of it, which the assumption is that he's going to, he then has to plan on building the sort of materials that he needs to build in order to create the fermentation to make the wine. Because remember, the flood just happened. Everything is, at best, unusable, if not utterly destroyed. So he's got to make all that stuff. And then, after the, the, the vines have grown, they've put out their grapes, he's got to harvest those grapes. 
He's got to bring them in. He's got to make the, the juice from the grapes. And then he's got to ferment those the juice. And he's got to make enough wine that he doesn't just get drunk. He gets staggering over, completely forgets that he's naked drunk. That's that's a deeply, profoundly level of, of drunk. That's That's not just, I had a few too many. That's a lot. That takes... Time. And time does crazy things. And I thought about this family back on the boat. I thought about this family as they were literally in the middle of the wrath of God. I thought about the sounds in the early days as people and animals were drowning around them. I thought about the smells in the early, in the early days as dead bodies are probably floating around them. I thought about the loneliness and the isolation as you're realizing that suddenly everything becomes quiet after a while. And all you hear is the waves because it's just you left. On that boat, it is probably really easy to look to God in fear and trembling and say, God, I just want to do whatever you want me to do because I never, ever, ever want to see anything like this happen again. The horror. But time, time has a way of washing that away. And that in and of itself is a sermon that we've all heard. We've all, I've, I've given that sermon to a dozen different passages because, yeah, it's, it's a part of the existence of life. My goodness, look at the book of Judges. The book of Judges is literally that played over and over and over again. The people did what was right in their own eyes. Every one of us is prone to well, forgetting God. We will find ourselves in intense moments of closeness with God, understanding who he is, that we are working out our, our salvation in fear and trembling. We are there. We are in it. And while we're in it, we will say there is never a time that we want to be anywhere other than where we are now. But time happens. And we forget what that moment felt like. We've all been there. If we've been on this faith journey for any real length of time, we have all had those moments. So what makes this unique? What makes this stand out to me? Why am I talking about this with you right now? It's because I teamed it up with something else that we have brought through the rest of the book of Genesis to this point. I reminded myself that God is not merely inciting incident. He is not some kind of shadowy force moving people across a board like chess pieces to enact some grand plan. He is a person. He is a character in this story. And I realized... Where is he right now?
if you look at every story we've seen so far, we've got Adam and Eve. There's deception. There's there's the act of biting that apple. And with it, sin enters the world and tarnishes everything. The relationship between humans and God is broken. And yet God spoke. God, in a way that only God can, spoke. And he spoke both judgment and grace. He spoke because he was standing before them. You move to Cain and Abel. You have jealousy, wrath, just pure, unadulterated rage. And we have fratricide. Brother killing brother. And God speaks judgment. And even in his judgment of that most heinous of acts, he still says, Okay, I'll, I'll go a little easier on you. Because he's God. If there's anybody who has even a modicum of forgiveness for that, it's God. But God was there. Where is God here? We had him in the rainbow. But as we've already established, a lot of time has happened between the rainbow and now. There's a lot of time of doing their own thing, of, of working their own t soil. It's a lot of time to forget those days on the boat. The loud, terrifying nights that would shake your soul. The quiet, still eerie kind of nights when you realize that you don't hear much else in the world because there isn't much else in the world we forget those and yet and with that sin's still here Why is God not speaking here? You can make the argument that what Noah says is a prophetic act, and therefore you can say that God is speaking. But even if you hold to that particular understanding of this passage, it's not the same because there is no so says God. There's no God standing there asking questions he knows the answers to, hoping for just that one glimmer that maybe they might look at him and say, we need your help in this because we are lost and broken. Please fix it. If for some reason you've listened to this one before the previous episodes I've done on the book of Genesis, I fully understand that the plan has been enacted since before time began. I understand that. I understand the omniscience of God. I understand who he is, but I also understand that this is a God who, when Christ stood before Lazarus's tomb, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, he still cried for him. He still wept for him because he still knew that his friends saw death. 
And so if this is the God we're talking about here, I fully want to say that in spite of the fact that he knows that it ends on Calvary, that sin is laid low in that moment, that yes, people are lost and broken, but there will be a day in which all of this is made okay. I still know that this is a God who has, in some small way, felt like he, he's just giving up. I'm not showing up to this anymore. And to me, it feels almost like I can hear a sigh that only a truly exhausted parent can give. I've tried over and over to show you the right way. I've tried over and over to show you that the thing you're choosing right now is only going to lead to pain, is only going to hurt you and hurt me and hurt everything between us. I've done everything I know what to do. And it wasn't enough. So fine. If this is the road you're going on, we, I'm, I'm not going to stop you. And I will take care of this. But I hate the fact that the way that we take care of this is through blood and darkness and pain. Because all I wanted to do was fix it. And even when I blew up and wiped everything away and I showed you what I could do. You still can't stay with me. You still can't do what you need to do. And I feel the heaviness in his heart. When he said, fine, if you don't want to talk to me about it, I'm not gonna, I'll fix it, I'll fix it, I really wish you'd just talk to me about it, I really wish we didn't have to do this this way, this this changes how God interacts with us in this story. This changes. And while God is always present, he's omnipresent, whatever it looked like before, this is the moment when it stopped looking like that. This is the moment when he stopped trying to walk with us in the cool of the evening. This is the moment where God said, things are different now. And this is the moment when God starts getting used to the fact that it will be a long, long, long stretch of time of hurt and of pain and of sadness until things even begin to look right. Look, I always knew that Noah and the Flood was a dark story when you really start thinking about what's happening here. 
when you start thinking about it as a story of God's wrath, when you start thinking of it as the world just being destroyed. Of course it's awful. But seeing God change the way he dealt with the people in these stories in this moment. Seeing all the human characters falling into the cycle that will literally always be there till glory. Even when, you know, there's so many times that, that I've talked to people and I know I've said it too. There are so many times you go like, oh, if, if only we could have that moment where you could really know God is there and you don't care if it's a positive or a negative, but just you really want that moment where you like, like if God could just show me 100% that, that, that this is what he's about and that this is what he needs me to do or, or even that, that God would even just be that whack-a-mole God that so many accuse him to be and just, just beat you up the side of the head just one time to make it crystal clear. Then you'd understand and then you'd be able to move forward. To realize that that's not how this works and to realize that in this moment, in this part of the story, God said, I'm, I'm going to fix it. But I guess we can't talk like we used to. I will fix it. Because I love you too much not to fix it. But it hurts that it had to be this way. I have a whole new appreciation for the Noah story now. I see it in so many different... I, I don't deny the ways that I saw it before. Those are still very much present. They are still very much part of the story. The The hope in the midst of sadness, the, the understanding of, of God's relenting on his wrath, these are all very much still a part of it. The Noahic covenant that says we're never going to see a flood that destroys the world again. I'm super keen on that and I believe it. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, I have a whole new mess of ways to look at this. And I can't change the fact that God not showing up here to ask questions that he already knows the answers to has had a profound impact on the way I view both the flood and its aftermath. And it has a deeply painful and yet beautiful weight on the fact that the cycle of trusting God and absolutely not trusting God is not new. That God has been dealing with this for a very long time. 
and you can find sadness and pain in that and not see the beauty of that. But even in this, because it's God, it's the way he does things. Even in this, I can see that there is hope here. Because God has been dealing with this for a very long time. And because he fixed it. He fixed it even when we kept going down the same road. He still fixed it. Because he loves us that much. I really hope this has been interesting for you as it has been for me. I really hope that, that you never stop asking questions of scripture. We're You're going to keep going through Genesis and we're going to be asking these questions and, and there's still going to be plenty of times when I look at parts of the story that are, are new and different and crazy, but sometimes even the old messages, even the old aspects of, of preaching, even the, even the recurring themes can hit you in ways that you never knew just by asking the questions. And we will keep asking them here at the Barton